what had happened was I was minding my own business, right? And Amelia Robinson, the Amelia Robinson hit me up and said, hey, we gonna do this? I'm like, yeah, we gonna do this. That's what had happened. <laughs> Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Date.com. Boy, do I have a fun show for you. The voice you just heard belongs to actress and podcaster Felicia Chappelle, a jewel all the way from Yellow Springs. Felicia and I had a great time talking about her famous brother David and the impact his comedy shows have had on our community, her upbringing worlds apart in Yellow Springs and DC, the power of art, perspective, and travel, and of course, her brand new show, Faces on the Train. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a project of Dave.com brought to you by Cox Next which offers advanced digital solutions. Subscribe and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you find shows you just can't get enough of. Now here is my chat with the very theatrical Felicia Chappelle. So how you doing? I'm doing okay, all things considered. I'm fantastic, hang in. What have you been up to, anything good? I mean, there's always something good happening over here. Mostly just staying quiet, but comedy shows have been fun and I've been working hard, doing well, just doing well. Are you helping with the comedy shows or are you just going to them? I don't have any delegated responsibilities at all. I just go when I have time, when I'm, when I'm scheduled to go, I go. What's been your favorite one so far? I can't say there's a favorite. Every single week, it's a whole different miracle and a whole new set of magic. And I mean, to pick a favorite would be kind of rude because they've all just been really, really tremendously fun. Erica Badu's personal concert was pretty exceptional, but then again, it's all been miraculous. So yeah, it's been great. Well, why do you think those concerts are important for this area? And, and why do you think he's doing these concerts? And I'm you know, not- it's pretty interesting. Well, what? Finish the sentence, though. And I'm not going to only ask you stuff about your brother, okay? I'm not going to do I know, that. I know, but it's just so much fun. It really is fun. Really, some people are like, we haven't had a date night this whole time. Our marriage is suffering, you know, and just people feeling tight from head to toe. You don't really get to see friends very often. Definitely don't get to go out, grab a laugh. It's been a little tight for this pandemic, and to get out and see people like, I was just saying this to somebody else when I was visiting. I was like, when we first started seeing folks come off the jets or come in from wherever they were coming in, or some folks wanted to drive because they didn't want to be anywhere near an airplane or an airport, people were looking tight and shook. And it's the same thing with local residents. It's like, people are looking tight, they're looking shook. And when they leave, like after all that laughing, even though there's no alcohol at the venue, you have to drink before you get there or after you leave, Everybody just looks so much more relaxed. What is it like to be Dave Chappelle's sister? I know you probably get sick of that. <laughs> or do you? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Celebrity is like... I'm going to ask you because I'm like, I'm not supposed to ask if you don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. You know, it's funny. I don't often talk about it. I mean, we see each other at the shows. We see each other at the juke joints. We see each other, you know... We see each other at all those little underground events and all those fun little things. It's been a wild, wild, wild ride. He's been focused and dedicated and doing the same thing for three decades. That always pays off, no matter what that thing is. He's been focused on it since he was a teenage child. I remember there's a picture in our living room of him holding a newspaper that he was reading, and he was six years old. He wasn't just playing with it. It wasn't a prop or a toy. He was reading the paper. It, he, it was his newspaper. He was reading it. He was interrupted from reading it by somebody taking a picture. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So 
Um, this is my newspaper. Action figures will come later. Action figures came before. I'm with the newspaper right now. I'm six. Did you want something? You know, he's always been like that. A story that I don't tell very often, I'll tell you this. Like when we were young, he used to have these elaborate stories. And after Thanksgiving or any family gathering, we would all sit around in the family room. We would get little chairs, folding stools, that little weird kitchen stool that the metal kitchen stool I know you know the one you pull it out and it has three steps to it all those and every seat in the house would be taken and it literally be in the house like at home and he would tell these elaborate stories and he was like three and four years old and both of my brothers would entertain us and we would watch that sooner than television and they would do it straight two hours you know oh he would and do that for two hours they would do it for two dinner after dinner we would sit still for a couple of hours watching them really that's how, yeah that's how long he's been doing it Felicia Chappelle, okay? Who the yeah. hell who are you? I, um, <laughs> I'm a thespian at heart. Live stage performance, drama is really where my heart is. I'm a writer and I've always been a writer. I've started writing when I was a, a child. I've always kept a journal and I've always turned it into some kind of structural thing. I've been a writer for a long time. I love comedy. I'm a comedy junkie. I am not a comedian. And neither can I sing. <laughs> those are two things that I am not. I am not a musician and I am not a comedian. I love both of those things, which is why I really appreciate that part of the work that happens. But I am a stage actress and an actress in general. And acting is definitely my passion. Writing is another strength of mine. And that's pretty much what I'm... Um, well, where does this artistic streak you have come from? Here comes the cat. Oh, it's just ingredients. First, when I started at Antioch, which was years ago, I didn't want anything to do with the theater. I wanted to be in the building. I wanted to be behind the scenes and I wanted to be a techie. And that's what I told my director. I want to be a techie. And at the end of the first quarter, uh, it wasn't long before I realized that I needed to be on the other side of it. And then once I got on stage, it didn't really go away. It's not something you can just drop. What was Yellow Springs like growing up for you? Because you grew up in Yellow, Yellow Springs. Springs. Oh my God. I did grow up in Yellow Springs. You're right. I, I am a Miami Valley girl and I am from the village. And uh, it was a magical place. I first have to say that one out of four individuals in Yellow Springs held a PhD. That's the environment that I grew up in. And these were not um, your typical pedagogians or PhD holding type populations. These were alternative culture people who had a lot of social justice on their mind. The village was 25% African-American at that time when I grew up there. That's not so much the demographic at all now. It was really above the national average. And even if you talk about the generations before us, they could not afford to have two school buildings. So the school system was integrated in the 1940s. So black students and white students have been going to school since 1940 by the time Brown v. Board of Education came up and schools were trying to be integrated by the federal government. They had integrated the schools a long time ago. So it was quiet as it's kept. There were a lot of Quakers there. It's always been a black town. Most of the municipal property were, was owned originally by African-American men, Gaunt, Mills, and others who donated the land to the village. So it's been different for a long time. When I was there, of course, that was in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when I was a young person in the village. And it was definitely, it takes a community to raise a child type of place to be and everybody had something on their mind. They didn't always get it right, and we don't always get it right, but that was kind of the underlying intention 
of race relations and, and gender balance and all the little demographics were kind of coming together. And African-American people were affluent in the village, many of them, um, affluent and educated and had been for generations, longstanding affluent families. What is a man's name who he donated the land that is the park? Oh, 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 you're talking about Wheeling Gaunt. Yes. It's not unlike Caesar, who donated the, the land around Caesar's Creek. Wheeling Gaunt was similar to Caesar, decidedly donated all of his land to the village. And he also made a stipulation where it had to be used for public use. That's why all the municipal public baseball diamond, all that stuff, the fireworks, all happens on that donated land from generations and generations and generations ago. And he also said that every widow, every widowed woman in the village had to receive 10 pound sack of flour and sugar every year around Christmas, which they still distribute, but it's been cut in half because, you know, nobody really bakes like that anymore. <laughs> and that's a crazy story because obviously people want to put Black people in a box and say Black people do this or that, but, but Black people own property, you know? Right. So why are you stealing Yellow Springs? I drank the water. Does that count? <laughs> I drank the water. No, I left the village for a long time when I graduated. It's magical there. We can hate it because of this or that. And it's kind of the nature of the village to complain about something, to not be fully content because there's not justice for everyone. There's not equality or equity for everyone. So there's always going to be a malcontent element to living there and being there and being a part of the culture. But I left for a decade plus and I came back to deal with aging parents when my father wasn't well. And I ended up forging a life here. I just never, never returned to what I thought I was going to return to quickly once my father passed away. So, and, and I'm content here, especially now that so much is going on and everybody's fleeing the cities like, what's going on in the cornfields? <laughs> you know, but... Is that why you think your brother's for the same reasons? Because of the parents and the... Why do you think he's in Yellow Springs? Um, whenever anybody asks him, he always says, why not? I mean, it, it really was a great place to grow up. It, it, there was... And it's not just a nostalgia thing. We're really fortunate, and I think because we're used to being in Greene County or even the Miami Valley or specifically Yellow Springs, I mean, you know, in the Oregon, it's special around here, around these parts. It's a purple state in general, and the Miami Valley is actually just kind of cool, a little dry. It's not as happening as other parts <laughs> of the universe, but, you know, it, it's not a bad place. It's a pretty eclectic little part of the world. You saw how we responded last May to those folks coming out here trying to spread their hate around us and just how we responded and galvanized awful times last summer, this time last year. The people really came out and said, you know, we don't like hate. It's not who we are. We don't like division and separate, you know, and that's kind of the Miami Valley and Yellow Springs is kind of like the heart of the Miami Valley. It's just kind of always been that eclectic little different place even when there was horseshoe communities and people yeah. getting people above the ohio river and the heck up out of here on into canada or wherever they were running around to um so you're putting everything you're doing on a hole right now right not everything actually the unfortunate thing has been like my play interrupted motherhood that stage piece of my life is on hold everybody i know who likes to be on stage it's maddening it is maddening to be used to that and to be not able to be on stage. That is on hold. Those dates have been postponed. Everybody called in pretty quickly like, um, do you mind if we postpone? We have to change the terms. There's nobody here. And it's like, yeah, obviously, no problem, no problem. But that's been a zero, no movement for the stage stuff. And that's been hard. But I started working on a couple other things to stay busy because you know how it is when your mind's used to working all the time. It's not like you're gonna rest just because there's nothing to do. 
I started working on Faces on the Train, which is my new podcast. It's an audio drama, flash fiction podcast, Faces on the Train. And it's been been phenomenal. Just kind of transfer everything into a new project, not being able to move the show around. What is that about? Faces on the Train, it's about those brief interactive moments with strangers. It's a people watching piece. Sometimes somebody can set you off and you can end up flipping them off or just mad or they cut you off. And I'd be like, ooh, I know I just cut them off. And before I know it, they've given me the finger and I could just, I changed the course of their day. And I'm like, ah, I didn't mean to do that. Meanwhile, hey, you just gave me the finger. Meanwhile, I'm set off. And then it just is a chain reaction kind of thing. Since things have been so tight, Faces on the Train is like, what if we let those moments go differently? So it's just imagining that that other person has a whole other bunch of things going on. And it just tells the story of this person's things that are going on. So you basically yeah. like take a person you saw and recreate sort of a story around them, is that what it is? Yeah, I create a narrative about a person that I don't know. And it's a fictional narrative. I might see an actual person and then I just make up a story, a story that says they have something going on and you don't know what it is. Started to download it, but then I never listened to it because I've been so busy doing all the other stuff. It's been like nuts. People who say they, they have nothing to do, I don't understand that because I have a million things to do. <laughs> it's like, okay. Probably get it. That's why you're getting awards for some of the work that you're doing. Because oh, okay. you, because yeah, that's what's going on. You have a million things to do because you're detail oriented and because you're generating content, not just at the news. That's yeah, yeah. real talk. Well, thank you. How are you feeling generally with all this stuff that's going on? All the coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter stuff. What do you think all this means? This is the biggest question mark. I'm usually so much more articulate. That is the biggest question mark of the century for me. Obviously, the young people are not going to respond to this lifetime the way the young people responded when I was born. I was born about two weeks after Martin Luther King was assassinated the 60s and that was one set of responses and then we burnt down a bunch of cities in the 80s and that was a different set of responses and when Rodney King got videotaped with the beating that happened that was a different set of responses these young people are really different and I'm kind of curious about that and what they're gonna do as uh, as the generation progresses um, I feel a little overwhelmed honestly the virus and the pandemic and everybody's response and how much hard-headedness has come out of everything is kind of put me off. Like people really feel like it's a stance. It feels like a bunch of different responses to a bunch of different things all wrapped up in this mask. <laughs> a lot of really deep-seated stuff is coming out over that. And I'm really not into the random civilians killing people thing. No. <laughs> I, I'm not into that at all. I'm like, what's with this random civilians gunning folks down? Forget about the fraternal. Okay, that's, that's a big deal. You know, there's a thing called due process. There's this little thing called the Constitution. What? There's this little thing called, you know, judicial equity and uh, judicial fidelity and, you know, the ethics of the entire process. Oh, those are things I'm feeling picky about. The over-entitlement of uh, individual citizens imparting their version of morality over the right and the other people. It's just like, whoa, what's all that? It's a lot to process. We're going through something for some reason. I, I haven't put it all together yet. What do you want to see happen as a result of all this? Oh, that's a great question. That is a really good question. Well, I can't say clearly. If you've made it through the last six months without learning something about yourself, I'd like to know more about how that worked. Uh, because <laughs> I, I don't know, everybody seems to be learning a lot about yourself. There've been times 
when there is no recourse but to sit still and process stuff. Now, there are people who do that on the regular. Sometimes I'm one of those people and sometimes I'm not, depending on what suits me. That's how emotions work for some of us. But having to live in close quarters with people, not having the usual movement, there's been a, a time where you had to be still when you didn't want to be. And that little bit of reflectiveness has kind of spilled into everybody's life. And I don't think there's ever been a time that in my lifetime, for sure, maybe during a world war, but I don't know that it's the same thing, where everybody was responding to the same thing. Even during war, there were pockets of places that were bombed and destroyed and other places that were untouched. But this has actually entered every household in the civilized globe. And I've thought about that a lot. But what I want to see come from it, I think there's going to be change. This is one thing I've always said. Nobody sits down and says, everything at work is going fine. My career is actually at a good place. My personal intimate relationship is doing fine. And I'm just going to challenge myself and shake it all up because I want to see what I'm made of. Nobody does that. Maybe that's what I want to see. People shake it up, huh? Yeah, shake it up and change. Well, that's one thing we've done. We shook it up. Everything, things that you didn't think had to be shook, have been shook. I'm sitting in my house right now. I never thought that I would have to be working constantly from home. And that's yeah. because we are not working in the office because of coronavirus. So it's like right. crazy. I'm looking at people differently now than I used to. Hey friends, just popping in to remind you that the What It Happened Was podcast is brought to you by the Dayton Daily News. As our community and nation respond to the coronavirus threat, the Dayton Daily News is here, providing up-to-the-minute local coverage on our website and app, and going in-depth so you know what's really going on. Our news team is working around the clock to provide information you can trust, to keep your family safe and connected. As a community, we may be hunkered down in our homes, but we are still Dayton strong. We have survived so much together and we'll get through this crisis too. The Dayton Daily News, your trusted source for local news. You can kind of brush stuff off and go, well, that person is, you know, having a bad day or whatever. But I'm thinking like, why is that person actually doing that? Like, what is his intent and who is he really? Like, what is these, yeah. these actions generally telling me about this person? I don't know if that makes sense. That's just something that... No, that does make sense. That's kind of the impetus for Faces on the Train. It's like, I'm looking at people. My people watching has changed. So, you know, you're hearing all these stories come out of the city of, you know, what's it mean to be defunded as a police force? What that means about your attitude towards your job? What's that mean about what you see happening on the street? What it means when a, a, a number of thousands of criminals are re-released back into the street, met some of them mentally ill? What's that mean for public space and moving around safely? How you say you're looking at people differently. I'm asking different questions when I see people on the street. And I notice that different people are asking different questions about me. And give you an example. We had to go to the hospital for something. We went and there was this lady and she, she was a much, 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 much older lady. This was a big part of her day, getting into this setting and getting out. That was going to be a big deal for her. And uh, she was a white woman and she looks at me and she looks at my daughter, and we were both masked. It was, a, it was a hospital. And she goes, I just look at the masks. And she shrugged and walked away. Now, at the time, I was like, okay, you know, you say polite things to older people. That's just, you know, I, I wasn't even really listening to her. And when I got back to the car, I realized I was like, she is saying that she might not have seen me before. And now she sees, oh, this girl has this kind of mask. And this girl has this kind of mask. And she says, well, I just look at the mask now. So 
there's a shift in how she's seeing. Oh, that's interesting. It included, you know, my little quilted, I had like a Americana, red, white, and blue. It was around the fourth, you know, my little patriotic thing, but it was kind of like a distressed kind of barn siding little quilted thing I had on. My kid had on this like revolutionary thing that had some kind of <laughs> rainbow unicorn flair to it because that's how she is. So it's like bubblegum, rainbow, revolution, you know. And so this old lady was processing that and she was seeing us and it was You know different. what was interesting about the mask, they do tell you about people's personalities too. Like some people yeah. do the straight up black or straight up white mask, but people are doing some funky stuff with these masks. And right. Like a superhero when I wore my mask a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Can't we just yeah. mask all the time? No, we don't want to do that. No, it's weird. <laughs> Sometimes I want to please not everybody, but I want to have a real smooth transition when I have to do stuff. So I'll put on my mask right when I get out the car. And then when people look at me one way, I'll be like, you know, you dirty inside, outside and upside down. I'd wear a mask on the regular because you know you're dirty. And then someone else will look at me and I'll be like, I'm just doing it because everybody else. I will take on a whole imagined persona based on not wanting to have any conflict with how anybody else is feeling about it, you know? That's fun. Then I get in the car and I take it off real quick. And, you know, I always park near pickup trucks, you know. <laughs> I just have this whole new way of moving. <laughs> what were your parents like growing up? My parents are pedagogians and they are definitely always about the lesson and that was part of our rearing we did not receive beatings really <laughs> we did not receive beatings i would pay a king's ransom for a good solid ass whooping you know we got talked to until we wanted to be deceased i mean really lengthy imparting like, just beat me, please. Oh, my God, this is taking forever kind of thing. Um, what would they say? Like, uh, would they try to, like, explain what you did wrong or why you're <laughs> a teachable moment? My father would say things like, um, <laughs> he would always, he would punctuate heavily, but it was like there were rules he would try to impart. You never say whatever. Huh. Whatever was completely disallowed. Like, whatever. Like that. Yeah, good, uh, like, exactly like that. That was completely disallowed. You could even perhaps use some profanity on occasion for emphasis, and it wouldn't be looked on as harshly if you said, oh, dad, whatever. No. You weren't going to leave the house for a week. So you said, hey, whatever. Apathy was completely disallowed. So if you said, Ugh, whatever, that was not going to fly with William at all period. So there had to be a lengthy discourse about why it was socio-politically not whatever, why it was personally not whatever, why it was never whatever in his house, why nobody born under his roof was about whatever. I mean, it was just a long process until he knew you got the lesson. There was no relief in the conversation. How'd your family get here anyway? Your dad came first or how'd that happen? Oh, how do we become Ohioans? My grandfather graduated from Wilberforce, actually. Oh! I think he's, the foreseen yearbook that I saw was 1938. And then my parents were both native Washingtonians. When you're a native Washingtonian, there's not many other places you want to be because you're kind of at the hub of it all. So we were multiple generation native Washingtonians on that side of the family. My father's parents came up from the South. My mother's parents came from the islands and they were just Washingtonian fixtures with, you know, my grandmother was, um, she worked as an accountant for the federal government. They were just like, get a federal job. They were just, there were a lot of mixing there. 
in the federal government and that employment, as we know from like hidden figures or from being around the Air Force Base over here, you know, integrated early. My father came to work at Antioch where he was dean of students. My mother came because she was, she established the Belinga Center at Wright State. And yes. so she was here doing that. And she was also teaching at Wilberforce and setting the preliminary plans for what has become the African American Cultural Museum there. And um, you're an artist, he's an artist. Did your parents want you guys to be artists or? You know, he started out wanting to be a basketball player because he went to basketball camp and he was pretty talented at that. I think it was more like, one of the things was like middle class, fighting middle class mediocrity. Like we weren't poor, we were poorer than the people around us, but we were richer than the people in the other neighborhoods that we didn't live in. So that was a big impetus for us wanting to do things. Our parents taught us to be good people. Like that was a really big deal for them. My dad was corporate, my mom was Capitol Hill legislation, and they just wanted us to be good people. Like that was very important for them. The art, my father, you know, he started music, he was a musician in the army. When he was in the army, he was banned. Um, and they've always been creative people, you know, even when my mom was touring Africa and all this other stuff in my, you know, my mother's whole side of the family also speaks French and things. So there's always been that kind of eclectic to the household dynamic. Do they Art, or why is it French? Why is it French? It's French mostly because my mother went to French-speaking Africa and being a native Washingtonian at the time, there were a lot of African embassies. My grandmother is Caribbean. So that was kind of the same other people would have been the Africans, the Caribbeans. Those would have been the same other people. Since she was moving in those circles, she was working with the union workers, the Africans, and the Caribbeans, and just ended up with the second language of French. Now, if you were in the district, your second language would definitely be Spanish. Um, they traveled to Africa, and French-speaking Africans, and French-speaking Africa was just a part of my mom's Pan-Africanism and her work at, in, in, in African-American studies and, and all that stuff. So, you know, there was French at the house, and, and people spoke it, and you kind of understood it. You have French babysitters, you know, young college kids. <laughs> French families, African families. We always had housekeepers, actually. Oh, you fancy. <laughs> it was fancy. It, we was fancy. We was fancy. Yeah, yeah. I housekeeper right now. <laughs> it was weird. It was strange because we, we were on the break. But then divorce always destroys any sort of fiscal stability that, that Black folks were trying to develop in that day and time, you know? And like interracial marriage was just coming to and DC had a lot of mixed people and mixed cultures and a different eclectic Washington's always had a different eclectic when did you come to Ohio how old were you let's see when my parents split up my mom was stayed was like went back to her Washingtonian roots and my dad stayed on at Antioch and we just kind of bounced back and forth I was here for fourth grade which was fantastic I was here every summer which was fantastic and then by high school crack it hit DC Oh. And that was not fantastic at all. That was really devastational to everything DC had been. And it was just the beginning of the end. It was, I remember I went home for a visit. I called my, my mom's house and this guy answers the phone. I'm like, hello, um, can I speak to David? And this guy answers the phone and like, hey, my name is Leonard. You must be David's sister, Felicia. It's nice to meet you. I just got shot in front of your house. I got shot eight times, but they found the guy because they took my jacket and the jacket had all the bullet holes in it. And I'm doing all right now. I'm at the hospital. Hold on, David, your sister on the phone. You know, I had been in Yellow Springs for a while. So I was just like, wow. shook. I was like, whoa. 
And, you know, my brother's like, yeah, Leonard's cool. You know, he's all right. He's, he's a good guy. You'd like him. He's cool people. I'm like, shot in front of our house? What the frick? You know, I had just come home, you know, for co-op. Um, <laughs> I was going to work, you know, my friend was going to be at the organic grocery. I got a gig at National Public Radio. And, you know, we were just home for the summer. And I was like, shot in front of the house? I ain't been going that long, you know. So we kind of just dodged back and forth to to stay away from that, but we were city kids. We were DC kids. We were, you know, from the BMV and we were used to being there, but it changed so quickly and so much, you know. So after that, you guys kind of just kind of settled here then? Yeah, my dad kind of plucked us and was like, uh, Bonnie Reed, that's my mom. You want to let go of the reins for a minute and <laughs> send them over here? And my mom was like, yeah, I get it. Yeah, it's, it's a shame what, people don't understand the impact still that crack had on black communities all around the country. People say crack is whack like it's funny, but like it really did mess up a lot of stuff for a lot of it people. It was worse. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. I mean, I guess heroin now is doing that to an extent, but it's not like how crack did it. Because crack busted some stuff up for sure. Yeah. So, and crack was multi demographic. Mm-hmm. So, what did you want to do next? so funny you said that what I'm doing right now is I am sticking with radio and other things that I can do remotely so I'm developing some things for radio that are in the works and that just keeps me busy while I'm here since I can't move around and the podcast is keeping me busy but I know that I ultimately oh my god is that Prince hanging on your wall oh yeah oh I'm in love with him yeah, we got that on, in New Orleans. My husband is like a big fanatic. Oh, let me show you something real fast. Hold on a second. Really? So we have the Prince plate. Oh my gosh. And then we have the little bitty Prince, uh, you call it things with the... <laughs> you have like, oh, the, like one of these chachkas with these, oh my gosh, this is so great. The ladies with the babushka sell this right at the line, right between East and West Berlin, <laughs> sitting on their blankets. They sell these little, um, yeah, oh my God, that's crazy. Yeah, we got Everything this in like, Prague too, so it was weird. You got that in Prague? Yeah. I had a great time in Prague, and then when he taped that video there, I can't remember which video it was, but he did a video there. I was like, oh my God, I've been on that bridge. That's Prague. <laughs> did you like Prague? Oh, I love Prague. Disneyland, like a real life land. You know the story about Prague, right? No. How the Nazis were going to destroy it. Hitler decided to keep it as a museum to a fallen people. He put all this Jewish um, artifacts in Prague and he was going to like make it the last place you can get a look at any Jewish stuff because his intent was to wipe, as you know, wipe the Jews off the planet. So, but Prague was going to be saved for that reason, which is why it's not bombed up like other European cities. Right. And I loved Prague. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. And the people are like, yeah, we used to, you know, eat the sausages on the street and drink the beer on the yeah, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so beautiful. I had no idea that I was in a city the size of New York. <laughs> yeah. When I got there and I was looking for my friends who were touring in this band, I was like, okay, so I should be able to find them. I'll see a poster or something and I'll run into them. I had no idea the, the magnitude of the place I was at and nobody spoke English and I was traveling by myself. And if people did speak English, they pretended not to speak English. Um, it was right after the wall had fallen, the Berlin Wall. And I actually did find them, which was even more miraculous. But uh, oh, you it was a really yeah. interesting city. The castle, the opera. You know, I'm a big Kafka fan. So I really loved the Kafka, whole element of Kafka being there. And I don't know. I just love Prague. I think it's fantastic. Is that when you were traveling around acting in college? I was actually touring Europe by myself. The strange thing was, is I had escorted a child back to Tel Aviv to be with his father. His parents were between California and Tel Aviv. And when I dropped him off, I was like, I'm not going to turn right around and go back. 
And my friends were there and they had a tour gig and they were musicians. So I traveled with them for a while. I took that little short brief time to see a bunch of cities at once because, you know, when you have a touring schedule, when I was touring theater, I was primarily in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival when it was still a very organic kind of space before it became what it is now. But the Edinburgh Festival was a great venue for acting at the time. Um, some European cities, some Scotland and England, mostly a residency in England, in London for theater. Yeah, touring is very fun. I, I miss it. I miss the stage tremendously. Now, how do you describe your art? I focus on the therapeutic value of art. Sometimes therapies in comedy, sometimes therapy is in drama. Art has a therapeutic value and we go to it whether we realize it or not, whether we know it or not, whether it's just light entertainment that takes us out of our head, whether it's dancing, music, laughter, all of that stuff is a big reset and we rely on it pretty heavily to like offset the stress of just existence the things we like and how we afford them. I definitely live in the lane. My art is to focus on the therapeutic value of art. We need it. It's not just entertaining. It resets us. It shapes us. It reshapes us. I'm actually going to do a talk about art and the stability of art coming up for the paper for one of our discussions. How do you want art to be used to kind of get us through all this mess that we're in? And you know, we are in a mess. <laughs> oh, we really are. It is such a hot mess right now. Um, Art is definitely the way out because even, for, even during any time of hardship, we always know that music unites us first and foremost. And now, because we're so fortunate as to have, you know, Chappelle here, the Mr. David himself, Dave Chappelle, his stuff unites people, laughter, comedy. I think one of the things that's going to get us from where we are to where we're going is we kind of know more about what we like. Watching these Zoom things has been interesting. You know, listening to different stuff. Everybody's been exposed to stuff that they might not have gotten around to before because we had that big slowdown. So now I think we're all going to be a lot hungrier for culture. We're all a lot hungrier for interaction. Devices are going to take a different lane. Live stuff is going to take a different lane. People want to be around people now, whereas before we were getting a little bit reclusive. Now it's like, oh God, even introverts are like, oh, okay. People aren't so bad. Extroverts are learning like, okay, being still has to happen. <laughs> you know, it does. I think we're going to come out of it with a different desire as, as consumers of art. Public art is becoming more important. We want to see sculptures. We want to see weird murals. We're more engaged, I think. And I think that's going to show in what artists present. And it's going to show in, you know, people will buy tickets when there's a venue now. People will be like, I do want to go. You know, <laughs> I want to go. That's going to become a new thing. People are going to want to be out more because there's going to have been something to balance it with. We're lucky. We always have the festivals, the rivers, all that stuff. Dayton's lucky. We have every culture in the world has their weekend festival. Blowout. They do. They really mm -hmm. do. And I was like thinking the other, how did I get my um, festival on? I'm not. Yeah, I know. <laughs> how many foods were on your list where you like, I want to go get them little, you know, and it's like, yeah, that festival's not happening. The Greeks got their food. The Germans got their food. Every little festival you go downtown and sit on the river and just be like, oh, yeah, I know who I'm looking for. And it's like last year, I was like, well, I'll hit them next year, right? I won't go yeah. to the Greek festival. I'll go to Greek festival every time, but I won't go to the Italian festival this year. I'll hit it next time. And now it's next time and I can't hit them. No, we can't hit them now. Right. <laughs> you want to say that I didn't ask you about? Just really listen out for my podcast, Faces on the Train. It's only 10 minutes. It's audio drama. It's a big escape. You can go in it, spend 10 minutes, and come out a whole different person in a whole different place. Really emotional little tidbits that are enjoyable. But no, I think we covered like every little bit for this time. Always yeah. a pleasure talking with you.
Pleasure talking to you too. This was fun for sure. Wow. You can follow me on Instagram at Women Work Wonders. Women Work Wonders? Women Work Wonders. I told you Felicia was a whole bunch of fun. Be sure to check out her show, Faces on the Train. I have since heard it, and I'm telling you right now, you will not be disappointed. The What Had Happened Was podcast was produced, written, and edited by me, Amelia Robinson. The show's artwork is by my good friend, Troy Lyman of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, bye bye See you alligators later, and please be safe. <laughs> <laughs>